Welcome back to the Raw Otters Podcast, Episode 7. I'm Josh Lewis, the venerable host of the Raw Otters Podcast and the incredible founder of rawotters.com, where you can find articles, car reviews, whatever you want to find. If you can't find it there, then you know what? You'll find it somewhere else. Please know that we're also on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, and of course where we are hosted naturally, which is podbean.com. So please, anywhere you want to listen to us, we're pretty much there. And uh, uh, tell your friends, share it with everybody. Uh, If you like them and they like cars, perfect. If they do not like cars, well, that's fine too, share it anyway. If you do not like them, definitely share it with them because then they will be nauseated by two hours of car talk and uh yeah you know what doesn't matter share it with them anyway this is episode seven where we will be talking to the great and wonderful green car daddy john volker if you don't know john volker i call him the green car daddy in this podcast because well he kind of is the guy that really knows everything about green cars Uh, When you talk about hybrids, plug-in hybrids, electrics, the whole market, the whole industry, and every country that buys and drives these cars. And he's a very important person for uh, understanding um, really where our future is going with these cars. Whether it will be primarily gas, uh, electric, a hybrid of some sort, or hydrogen, you know, farts, whatever. It's important to know and have an understanding and listen to people who are actually in the know and drive all these vehicles and really, really understand them and are able to teach us. And so just to give you a little heads up, I've never actually talked to John in person. Uh, I've never met John. Uh, We've only crossed paths on Facebook. We are friends on social media um, and we do chat, you know, from time to time on there, whether we comment or like each other's stuff, whatever. Uh, But I've long regarded John as an authority because I do read his stuff. I have read his stuff in the past. And it's he is somebody that I quote when talking to other people who ask me questions about electric cars or hybrids or plug-in hybrids or or whatever. Uh, So I really wanted to get him on the podcast because he has a a great voice. he has a fantastic background as an engineer, so he understands these things uh, like you know few really do. Um, because not every automotive journalist is an engineer, not every automotive journalist is a racing driver, not every automotive journalist you know understands how to be on a pit crew and changes a tire regularly or their own oil. And so when you find people that are actually that are in this industry that that know how to do these things. Um, and, and John being an example as an engineer, uh, understanding how the products are made, uh, understanding how they are developed and everything in between. So I wanted to get him on a podcast because he's one of these people that when you get him wound up, he, he keeps on going, which I think is great. I love somebody who talks and talks and talks. And this podcast is just shy of two hours and 14 minutes uh, with John and I talking. It, so with the intro and outro, it'll be two hours and you know probably 20 or two hours and, and 30 minutes closer to that. So as you're going through this podcast, just keep in mind, it is long. Uh, you might you know want to listen to it in two or three sittings. 
Uh, but I didn't want to break it up. I thought about breaking it up, but I didn't really want to do that only because there's a stream of consciousness and there's also uh, a, a friendship that's developing between John and I. And, and I think that it comes across well on radio uh, or podcast. This isn't really radio, but I, I enjoyed chatting with them. And I really, really believe that you will absolutely love listening to them. And I really, really believe that you will take what you've listened to and heard and actually help to develop better and and maybe even more precise opinions on the green car market of sorts. And if you know somebody that's in the market for a an electric car or a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid, this is the perfect podcast for them to listen to because John and I really get deep into it and also we also talk about why you should wait to buy a Tesla until three days till the end of the quarter. And so with that, I really, really hope you enjoy this. And I'd like to welcome to the Raw Autos podcast, Mr. John Volker. How are you doing and how are you holding up being in such a, a widely affected area of New York? Ah, uh, well, so for about... 15 years now, I've split my time. Um, my better half has a finance job historically in Manhattan. So if I want to see him during the week, I'm usually in Manhattan, but I also have to test drive cars, Manhattan not being the right place right. to do that. So for, to my shock, almost 30 years now, I've had this little place in the Catskill Mountains, which is due north of New York City, about 125 miles uh, up the Hudson Valley, named after the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. And it's a little, tiny, fairly rickety place uh, in the mountains. But uh, I'm lucky enough that it's on uh, toward the end of a private road that dead ends into state land. Uh, the private road used to be basically a stream bed. Now it's a combination of dirt track and one lane asphalt, but people don't come up here much, which is nice. I have four acres on the edge of a cliff. And mm. as soon as this thing got, I mean, even the shape of it, you know, none mm. of us probably pays a whole lot to of attention to China, you know, China health stuff, but I have a bit of history with medical activism from another era. Mm -hmm. And so I started watching as I think did aware people did. And about three weeks ago, I'm just like, you know what? I'm moving upstate for several months and better half came up 10 days ago. And uh, so we have desks on opposite sides of the living room and, you know, mostly it's it's the same thing as it was when I was working here alone. It's the clicking of keyboards and occasional curse words. Right. But um, he ha he has four different screens. I should observe. I only have one. <laughs> but um, the Global Finance Command Center in the mountains. But <laughs> it has been not a great deal of disruption for me. And I should you know underline and asterisk and boldface. I am deeply deeply privileged to be able to do this. I, you know, I'm also on the old side of the fence, uh, but I've, you know, uh, this thing has paid off. And if there were ever a time 
to come up and spend time in the mountains, this is it, especially right. because I whined for years about traveling too much for work and never get getting time to spend in the garage I built and never having enough time to work on the old cars yeah. and be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Now, it, now so. it's a, it's a forceful situation, but you know, it's, I, I, so I, I've not had any history with, you know, medical activism or health activism in any, in any real sense. Um, but I, I am a student of history. I'm a student of just kind of paying attention to what the rest of the world is doing in a sense. Okay. So when this started to happen, when it started to come out, I, I quickly started reading things and looking around and going, okay, this could really be something big. And, okay. you know, I, I genuinely thought about it early on. I mean, this was late January. And I was telling wow. my mom mid to late January, I was like, mom, this could be a big issue. I think you and dad just need to stay in the house. I live about 40 minutes away from him. And I said, whenever you need me, I'll come over and drop things off to you. But I'm, I, I don't want to see you. I'll drop things in the garage, but I will clean them off before I, you know, when I drop them off in a garage, I'll clean everything I touch or breathe on. I think this is going to be something bigger than we're gearing up for, you know? Um, I was very, very serious about very cautiously serious about it early on because I thought, and it's not so much because of any political administration. It's just because I thought now's the perfect time. We're all sitting lax, you know, we're all like, oh, we're, everybody's having a great time in life and, <laughs> you know, everybody's traveling and doing all these things. And I'm going, I don't know. You know, it's kind of like it, 9-11 changed me, even though I was only 15 years old when it happened. Okay. But I lived near an airport. I lived near, at that time when I was 15, I lived near RDU, Raleigh-Durham Airport. And okay. I was used to hearing planes all the time. And then after 9-11, it was like this weird culture shock when I heard a plane. You know, it was weird. It was a weird thing. But it was that moment, as stupid as it may sound to some, it was that moment where I was like, you know what? We as Americans need to take we need to look at what's happening in the rest of the world and take it seriously and see and really uh, evaluate if it could happen to us. And I was young with SARS and H1N1 and Ebola and all that stuff. But I was like, you know, one of these days, you know, I'm a big science guy. I'm like, one of these days it's, it's going to hit here. It has to. And so when I saw, when I saw it was kind of slowly spreading through China and Europe and I was like, ah, this is, they're saying it's, it's a slow charge and I think it's going to be a lot bigger. And that's when I just, I was like, nope, staying in, staying indoors, <laughs> ordering everything offline, yeah. opening up boxes on the front porch, like, you know, with gloves and lice. Now I did not, I did not panic. I didn't uh, hoard anything because I already had plenty of toilet paper. As far as I was concerned, we already had plenty of Clorox and Lysol and stuff like that. So I didn't hoard anything because I hate, I hate that kind of attitude, but yeah, I just, yeah, I was, I was cautious. I was very cautious in the beginning and I don't know that I can claim to have been that on top of it. You know, if there's a, a reaction curve for people in New York, I'd like to think I was a little bit ahead of the median, mm -hmm. but, um, it, uh, <clears throat> It was a relatively easy choice, um, and 
and I tend to see these things through a bit of a political lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was clear quite early on that there would be no effective national response, or at least not a national response with anything like the vigor and the science base that would be needed in time. Right. I don't think you can do, I, I mean, we've become, <laughs> we've become devotees of Governor Cuomo's noon address, um, or COVID daddy, as one commenter <laughs> called him. Um, but uh, he said today, you probably could not do across the United States a Wuhan-style response wherein everybody simply stayed home for weeks um, and enforced by government. Um, So, you know, America is as much theoretical as practical. Right. Uh, The differences in local responses are interesting. I am heartily glad that I live in New York State, which through a combination of fortuitousness and general concern about social welfare of its citizens is often more activist in these things and has a fairly good health care uh, angle to state government. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it has saddened me, I think, that the response to this pandemic like so many other facets of life has broken down along a red blue axis. Yeah. But it's pretty clear right now that the states that are lagging and are most behind and are most denialist uh, about the basic science of how pandemics spread and viruses are transmitted seem to be largely red. Um, but let's leave it at that because we could probably go down, <laughs> yeah, we could this go down this rabbit, rabbit hole. <laughs> hole for an entire podcast. <laughs> Good. Um, and I'd be interested but, in doing that sometime. Uh, but I guess we should, uh, we should move on because, you know, I, I, as I told you before, I, I do see you as kind of the, uh, you know, the, the EV or, or green car expert when I do think about things or, you know, it's, you're someone I recommend, you know, I'm just going to call you green car daddy. How about that? How about that? <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> that way you can, you would, you and Cuomo now have a, each have your own daddy names. Um, exactly. <laughs> but um, you, you are, you're somebody who has been on the forefront of this actual, um, of the change in the automotive industry. Now, we could talk about the fact that over the last 40, 50 years, some people have been saying this change needed to happen, you know, and you know, even GM in the nineties didn't really try, but there was a, obviously the EV one was, was something that is today. I think most people, most electric car enthusiasts look at it and go, that was, you know, Hey, that was something, you know? Yep. Um, but when you see how everything is going now, when you see, you know, the, 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 kind of so-called Tesla fanboys, you know, versus the, the, uh, the combustion engine people. And you see the, the arguments and the fodder and the fights and the everybody, you know, kind of being dumb on both sides. Um, sometimes being right, sometimes being wrong, sometimes just being general idiots. How do you feel about that? That there's almost like a war between internal combustion and electricity. Hmm. <sighs> 
Lots, lots to unpack in that. Um, <laughs> firstly, thank you for the, the good words. Um, what it means is that the evil master plan I concocted in 2005 <laughs> has actually worked. Um, my background is that I, uh, I have an engineering degree. It's probably a good thing for the country and the world. No one ever actually paid me to engineer anything. <laughs> but um, I worked as a consultant for a while and then went to work for a technology magazine. So I've functionally been a journalist for 35 years now. Okay. Um, but back and forth, and I built my first website in 1995, and it was pretty clear that that was going to be an interesting and significant and meaningful distribution channel. Mm -hmm. um, I think back then there was a lot of computer nerd pie-eyed optimism about Every, all information wants to be free and the internet setting people free mm -hmm. and almost no recognition of the problem that we try to cope with now, which is that the <clears> internet <throat> allows you to sort the information to get only the information you want, right. which is more yeah. profitable, yep. and not hear anything that you don't know or disagree with, um, meaning everybody can live in their own bubble. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big societal problem, and I don't think we've really grappled with it. Nonetheless, I built that website and bounced back and forth between a bunch of startups. And at the end of, well, sort of at the end of 2005, I had spent a year as a product manager at Yahoo. And that ended up ending rather abruptly. And it was essentially me sitting down and thinking, what do I want to do and what can I do and what should I do and what are the opportunities? And it was, the conversation ended up, if you're ever going to try to be a freelance car writer, now is the time to try to do it. Um, because I had always been a car geek. Um, I tend to say that many male children are born somewhere subclinical on the Asperger's scale. Um, a lot of a, a lot of them get sports. I mean, we tend to like, dedicated bodies of knowledge mm -hmm. that are deep that we can learn all about. And if they've got numbers and statistics and diagrams and maps, even better. <laughs> and, you know, lots of little boys get sports. Um, I happen to get cars. And because I was born and partly brought up in England, I got British cars. But I've always followed the auto industry. And I wrote about it here and there kind of for fun. But in 2005, it was sort of, okay, I can write. People will take me seriously as an editor because I've been writing professionally since 1985. Time to move out of technology and, you know, being a managing editor of magazines and websites and try to do this. And in thinking about it, there was so little good, thoughtful, analytical writing about what I think we call green cars for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that really means lower emitting, less fuel consuming, or zero emission vehicles for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and Toyota at that point in 2005, um, the Prius had been in the world for eight years, in the U.S. for five years, and it was just starting to take hold through this combination of the second generation being launched right into a fuel price spike. Mm -hmm. So 
the problem was at that point, if you looked at the conventional auto media, the general consensus was, and I am taking the words of Ben Wodilla, who's a friend, uh, but this is almost a direct quote. The general consensus was only smelly hippies drive Priuses. <laughs> but having gone to school in California and lived in Silicon Valley, I knew that that was completely untrue. That in fact, early adopters were snapping up Priuses to go next to the Mercedes. Right. Because they were the coolest, most technically advanced vehicle on the planet at that point. And so that was interesting. And um, long story short, I freelanced around. I did a lot of writing for whoever would pay me to write for them and ended up freelancing for a while for hybridcars.com. And in 2009, got hired to be the founding editor of Green Car Reports, where I worked for nine and a half years. I wrote 4,500 articles under my own byline, edited about another 8,500. Um, and when I left in May 2018, the site was, we think, the highest trafficked green car site in North America. Wow. So that's kind of a condensed version. But the point was simply, I picked green cars because no one was doing a good job in writing about them for a general audience mm -hmm. or for a car audience. There was contempt. There was dismissal. There were rude words, etc. But clearly this was going to be an area of technology that wasn't going to go away. And electrification, I mean, we didn't have case back then. You know, the connectivity, autonomy, sharing, and electrification, C-A-S-E, um, for case. We, we hadn't really sort of gotten to that point yet, but clearly electric motors and the drivetrain were going to happen, and no one was doing it, interestingly. So I mm -hmm. said, well, maybe that's my angle, and it's kind of worked. So that's the... That's the um, backstory of how we got to where we are. The question you asked me was, uh, how do I feel about Tesla fanboys and in effect powertrain wars, I guess. Yeah. Basically people, cause yeah. I see things on Facebook. I'm part of many different groups and it, I see things where some car guys, they like to park their Mustangs in front of, you know, uh, a Tesla supercharger and I, along with most of the other people, are like, "Come on, that's just that's just stupid, you know, that's ridiculous." And then, and then you go into the Tesla forums or you listen to the Tesla people. Um, I have not been able to find it, but it is uh, kind of funny because I, I read years ago or a couple years ago when the Mazda, I'm sorry, when the Tesla Model Three was coming out. I cannot find this. Uh, forum post for the life of me, but somebody had said in there and a couple people piled on that they should be able to call it the M3 and that BMW should just give up on the M3 because it's a failed car and that the that the Tesla Model 3 is the only real M3. And mm -hmm. it, it, there's this weird, there, there's weird personalities. Obviously, that's not the whole of each you know group of people. But how do you feel about those wars between those people that just want to just want to duke it out for no real good reason, in a sense. If this is a podcast, can I use the word dick waving on air? You can use any word you'd like. 
All right. Um, the, uh, the whole Tesla thing is interesting. Um, in the early days, it was unclear whether a hybrid vehicle, and I, I'm starting with hybrids because um, in 2009, the two key search terms for green car reports were Prius and hybrid. Mm-hmm. By the time I left in 2018, the two key search terms were electric cars and Tesla. But, um, you know, back then, the audience who was interested in those things was Priuses. But it was never clear, is a hybrid a powertrain option, like a diesel, Mm -hmm. or is it a type of vehicle, which is to say, you know, a C-segment, initially, a C-segment hatchback with a high cam tail that's extremely aerodynamic, that looks kind of weird, that makes a statement, I'm driving a hybrid, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. uh, has subsequently apparently become known as virtue signaling. Okay. Right. Never really resolved that, but it was kind of both. And in looking back after 20 years of hybrids, I tend to think that the Prius adversely colored a lot of people's approach to developing automotive powertrains um, in that historically, and you know, I, I read a lot of auto history because it's a fascinating industry and I'm a geek. <laughs> um, you know, if you look historically, every single automotive technology innovation, starting with Mr. Kettering's electric self-starter, mm-hmm. And moving through automatic transmissions, air conditioning, disc brakes, fuel injection, turbos, you know, you name it. It came in on the performance end or the luxury end of the market. Mm-hmm. And it was expensive. And they built a few of them, and they were usually top of the line. And over time, auto engineers did what they're really, really good at, which is to take a complex, expensive electromechanical technology and make it smaller cheaper and more reliable so you could use it on more cars at higher volume. So in that sense, the whole idea of the Prius was weird because the Prius wasn't a high-end car. It got high-end customers, but it was a mass market car. And that was because batteries were really expensive and Toyota needed to drive those costs down. Mm -hmm. And Toyota had a sort of a social mission. The Prius actually stemmed from, uh, efforts in the early and mid nineties to cut emissions of vehicles due to air pollution, not really carbon at that point, okay. not really climate change, but air pollution, you know, how, and the fuel crisis, two oil price shocks, one in 73, one in 79. I'm old enough to have gotten punched out in a fuel line because someone thought I cut in. Oh my God. Um, this is history that's largely gone, but, Toyota said, as a growing and highly profitable company, we should invest in our best skunk works R&D to make a car that uses half as much fuel as our best car. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Prius came from. But in order to make it fuel efficient, it had to be small. So this was not done as a performance or a luxury technology. And I think a lot of the mainstream makers took the wrong lesson out of that. If you look at Tesla, they did it the traditional way. First, they introduced an extremely expensive, low-volume 
not very well built um, roadster just to prove the technology and sort of show people that, in fact, electric cars were not for smelly hippies or something we don't see anymore, just glorified golf carts, that they were, in fact, real cars. And, you know, they could dust your fill-in-the-blank silently. Then Tesla introduced a large luxury sedan that started around, I mean, nominally it started at, I don't know, 52.5 or something, but they never built that one. So we're, we're talking basically 75 grand for a Model S. Right. And, you know, at one point you could spend 135,000 on a Model S. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was the high end. That automatically aces it out of 80% of the car market. And then they did the Model 3. Lower, lower, you know, lower cost, higher volumes. Mm-hmm. And that is really the traditional path. GM with the EV1 didn't do that. Imagine if the EV1 or its successor car, when they went from lead acid to nickel metal hydride to lithium ion, suppose Cadillac had introduced a Model S or a Model S alike. Oh, man. That might have been a more logical way, and you can get higher prices. Right. Imagine a Cadillac with the performance of a Model S. Didn't happen. You yeah. know, I'm not that interested in theoretical histories. But the point is that the first Nissan Leaf tried to out-Prius the Prius, and that was probably a mistake in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Now, about 20 minutes ago, you asked me the question, Tesla fanboys, um, of whom I have, I have often been the target, um, there's a great great book called Empires of Light, which explains the whole Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse trio and how America became electrified. And of course, Thomas Edison believed in direct current, whereas Westinghouse, using inventions by Nikola Tesla, who was a genius, but somewhat unstable, Mm -hmm. believed in alternating current, which proved to be the way to do it for mass rollouts in residential use. But Thomas Edison, by even though DC didn't make it, had this amazing PR as a brilliant inventor. And people would make pilgrimages, hundreds and thousands of people, to watch his appearances at his lab in Menlo Park, New Jersey. He was mobbed in public. He could fill halls whenever he spoke. Every word that he said was hung on by disciples who were effectively showing signs of religious behavior. And to me, that is exactly the frame in which I see Elon Musk. Tesla fanboys, in effect, have turned Musk and or Tesla into a religion. One of the interesting things about religion is that there's an argument it's evolutionarily adaptive, mm-hmm. that it allows human religion sort of putting a framework around inexplicable and often cruel and painful natural events. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you make a big bearded man up in the sky who does these things to you, um, it's probably your fault. And that makes these right. things explicable. Right. Um, and sometimes religions are not around Christian or Muslim or Jewish doctrines, they're around other things in our modern age. 
and Edison's followers had religious aspects, and I see Tesla's having that too. The problem is with people who believe things that are objectively disprovable, and not all of in fact, most of Tesla is not objectively disprovable, but there are reasonable arguments against some of the things they say. And <laughs> if you show religious adherence, factual, provable, independently verifiable information that counters their deeply held beliefs mm -hmm. to handle the cognitive dissonance, they double down on their beliefs and attack <laughs> the person who is showing them the information. Right. Um, and that's kind of what it feels like. It's similar there to are, how we've seen in certain political aspects today. You think? <laughs> so, um, you know, when a Tesla person, a Tesla fanboy, says to me, um, you know, BMW needs to walk away from the M3. It's a failed vehicle, and probably BMW will be out of business in five years um, because they're not adequately committed to electric cars. I smile indulgently. I nod. I pat them on their little shoulder, and I <laughs> walk away. Um, they may be right. I don't happen to think, based on doing this for 15 years, they're going to be. Or if they are, it will not be the effect of Tesla, but something endogenous like, right. uh, sorry, exogenous, like, um, oh, COVID-19. But, you know, one of the things about Tesla is that it still is not a mass market brand. Um, its buyers tend to be very technical mm -hmm. and while they are along, there, there are sort of five reasons that people historically bought EVs in the early years. One was early tech adopters. Mm -hmm. The guy who not only wanted the first iPad on his cul-de-sac, but the first iPad in his zip code right. and paid one of his son's buddies to sleep outside the Apple store for 48 hours to right. get it. Okay. Early tech adopters. Those folks do not index high on green, which is why the phrase green cars is so problematic. You know, Tesla owners by and large don't care about the environment any more than anybody else does. There are some exceptions and it overlaps, but you know, early tech adopting has nothing to do with green, which is where electric cars were ghettoized for quite a while. And in some re some ways still are second group is people with environmental concerns, people who want to lower their individual carbon footprints, many of whom spend a lot of money and um, make great efforts in their personal lives to do so, although a lot of them screw it up by going to eco-resorts halfway around the world and flying there. <laughs> um, then you have the people who just like electric cars because they're better cars. Mm -hmm. And... If I had to pick a bucket, that may be where I sit, right. just because, you know, we have gone to absolutely absurd lengths to make internal combustion engines, which are now 140-year-old technology, um, do what we need them to do in a world where, in fact, you cannot just dump crap into our shared air anymore. Um 
you know, if you look at what's on a modern engine with variable valve timing and in a couple of cases, variable compression ratios mm-hmm. and start stop and hybrids and all the rest of it for very incremental reduction in fuel consumption, it's really silly. <laughs> Electricity is much, much, much easier. And the automobile is really the last major consumer appliance that we haven't electrified. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think electric cars are better. You know, they're calmer to drive. They're easier if you have decent one pedal. Um, I never have to go to a gas station. I just plug it in at home. Um, and yes, asterisk, most many people live in apartments and so on, but we'll get there. <laughs> but so there's that's a third group. Fourth group is one you don't see so much anymore, but were very big in sort of 2005 to 2012. And they were the energy security folks. As a friend of mine once said, after a few adult beverages, there is no more effective salesperson for plugging in a Tesla to run on domestically generated electricity than a uh, veteran of the Iraq war who lost both his legs below the knees because he knows the cost of maintaining our fossil fuel addiction. That argument has somewhat gone away as the U S has become temporarily the world's largest oil exporter, right? Uh, excuse me, or in, producer. Yeah. I forget the stats. I'm going to have to get them. Um, asterisk that one too, but <laughs> <laughs> there is an argument that the Saudis, <laughs> Sorry. You're fine. There's an argument that the Saudis um, are currently driving down oil prices basically to break the back of U.S. shale because if they can put most of the higher-cost U.S. shale uh, fossil fuel producers out of business, then they can get oil prices back up to where the kingdom needs it to be, which is about $80 a barrel in order to support their ferociously high domestic expenditures. Um, But oil politics is another rabbit hole we could go down that I will (laughs) cut off. And then the fifth group of people to buy electric cars. So we had, we started with um, early tech adopters, Mm -hmm. then the greens, then the, I like electric cars. They're better the energy security folks that aren't so vocal anymore. And finally, the ones I fondly think of as the cheap bastards, the <laughs> one who buys cars like fleet buyers are supposed to, and they make a spreadsheet and they say, I'm going to own it for this many years and I'm going to drive this many miles. And I think gasoline is going to cost this and my maintenance costs on a combustion car, are this and my maintenance costs are lower on an electric car. And here's what I pay for power. And they're willing to pay more in years one through three because they see a net reduction in expenditures for years four through seven. Um, Those folks do actually come out. Electric cars on a per mile cost are almost invariably cheaper, depending on what you pay for power. And virtually no American can tell me what they pay per kilowatt hour. It's fascinating. They know to the tenth of a cent what they paid for gasoline last time. (laughs) They have no idea what they pay for electricity. But depending on what you pay for power, it can be as little as a quarter the cost per mile to recharge a car on electricity compared to gasoline, not in the current day with $2 gasoline. But anyway, so those are the reasons that people buy electric cars. And that also points to one of the challenges, which is how do you market the damn things? 
right. to date, yeah. there's been almost no good marketing on electric cars. Tesla sort of anti-markets, if you like, mm-hmm. but they built a brand that no one has built in 90 years in America, a new startup car brand that is actually expanding its footprint. And the rest of the world hasn't wanted to market them because they're all, in some senses, compliance cars. Mm-hmm. They lose money on all of them. Um, that will end in due course as battery costs continue to come down. But it is not really in the interests of General Motors to sell twice as many Bolt EVs or Nissan to sell twice as many Leafs. And in fact, someone who was within the Nissan headquarters in uh, Tennessee once said to me, uh, you know, we really want to make the Leaf a success, but every one we do takes us just a little bit further away from Carlos Ghosn's profit goals that we have to meet. It's a problem. Interesting. Okay. So, um, is it a technology? Will we walk into our local Toyota? Well, not Toyota. They don't believe in electric cars. We'll get to hydrogen maybe later or maybe a separate podcast. (laughs) But, um, you know, walk into your local Honda or Nissan or Hyundai or Ford or Chevrolet or BMW or Audi or Mercedes dealership or Volkswagen and say, yep, I want a compact crossover just like that one. Oh, do I want a turbo four or a V6 or battery electric? Hmm, Let me think about that. We're not there yet. Volkswagen is taking the approach that its electric models are going to be totally different. They're going to look different which is probably appropriate because you can proportion them differently and uh, take better advantage of what an electric powertrain allows you to do than if you adapt them. But, you know, when does it become a straight-across decision? And then do legacy automakers actually put good marketing to work to try to sell them? And that's really only going to happen when they're profitable. GM says that'll be before 2025, and that's understandable given that their future EVs are not going to be Chevy Bolt EV-sized, but things like Hummers and big Cadillac SUVs where there's more profit margin. But to me, the marketing is really the open question for Americans. You know, will there be competent marketing for EVs that we will see within five years? And so... Where, you know, obviously we see the, the market going different, you know, different places for different manufacturers for new cars. Where do you see the used car electric market? I mean, do you recommend electric cars as used cars or, or even hybrids as used cars? Is that um, because I'm sure you're like me, everybody comes to you and what should I buy? And they never actually pay attention. They just want to ask you the question and then they go buy something else. But Well, actually, um, I have learned uh, to ask them, so let me ask you a question. Are you actually looking for alternatives, or have you already more or less picked what you're (laughs) going to buy, and you're looking for me to validate your choice? I ask a similar Uh, question now because I used to sell cars. Oh. Yeah. In 2007, I was a car salesman, and I I used to get in a lot of trouble because I was – very honest about the process. And I used to tell all of my customers to be careful 
when they walked into the finance office and just to say no to most of it, you know, and, but I worked at never a get ahead, never get ahead in the car world that way, son, <laughs> straighten up, fly, right, climb that corporate ladder at, and mate, by the way, make sure that you say, Hey, listen, can I borrow your car keys for a second? We just want to move your car. I'll bring them right back. And then when they want their car keys back, oh, God, I gave them to the manager, and he's off on lunch. Just talk to the F&I guy for a little bit longer. I used to get in a lot of trouble for that, too, because when people would ask me for their car keys back, uh, I would give them back immediately. And other salespeople or my managers would say, why the hell do you do that? And they sell the time. I'm not trying to kidnap anybody for $150, you know, because that's all I make off of this deal. That's all I'm getting is 150 bucks. Some, if that, sometimes I got 50 bucks for selling a new car and I'm like, I'm not holding somebody captive so that you can make, you know, two grand and I make, you know, a Snickers bar. That's it. So I used to get in trouble for that too, because I'm like, no, that's not, you know, I, I and I noticed we were doing, but I understand that you're not selling cars. anymore. <laughs> it's actually, I actually saw the writing on the wall because we were doing subprime lending. We were doing, uh, Ooh. We were doing, uh, we were, my manager was uh, calling the uh, bank manager for Wachovia, a local Wachovia branch. Uh-huh. And he would say, hey, buy this customer because they can't afford the car, but we, uh, it'll be repoed in the, next, in the next month or two. So that way we can resell it. And oh, yeah, so, you know, I saw a lot of that stuff and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I, I used to tell the, the guys I knew in, you know, in our sales department and I say all the time, all I have to do is let, just let me look at the books and I'll, I'll show you where they're doing wrong, you know, where there, there's something shady going on here, you know? And so I, I left, uh, towards the end of summer of 2007 and I, around that time I was spending most of what I was making to create my own website, to talk about cars. And that's, uh-huh. and so that's what I was doing was basically around that time, like learning how the industry, uh, you know, actually worked from a sales standpoint. And then bam, I was going to go review cars. That's what I wanted to do. That was my dream. So, you know, from a, you know, I, I, ever since then, cause I, I've always asked people, what do you, what do you really want? Because I, my personal yeah. judgment for everybody is, Drive everything that you don't want first and everything yep. you do want last. Yep. It's like, it's like visiting houses to buy or apartments to rent. Yes. Yes. If, if you look at how brokers set it up, there's usually three of them. And the first one is maybe sort of kind of what they wanted. And the second one is hideous. Right. And then the third one is the one that they'll sell. Right. And, and, and I, they, they know that. And I, I just, I, I don't like to play these games to people when they ask me all the time. Well, okay, tell me what you want, and I, I will tell you what works best for you around it. Like, you know, like what, what is your lifestyle? I guess that's another thing that people don't really understand is that they, they'll say to me, "Oh, I really want this car," and I'm like, "But you currently drive, you know, a crossover, and you're telling me you want a sports car?" Yeah, you know. Well, and. The other question I've found that's actually kind of useful has turned out to be, are there brands that you like mm-hmm. different from what you drive now? Mm-hmm. And are there brands that you won't consider? Right. Um, and that has proven to be, to allow me to sort some of the people into conveniently stereotypical buckets. 
But, you know, <laughs> right. I, you and I drive a lot of cars across a lot of brands. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're sort of trained. We have preconceptions, but we're trained to get, give every new car a fair shot, right. hopefully. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to be a big fan of the most recent round of Lincoln interiors. Oh, um, right. So, and the first one was the Continental, which yeah. I like. It's kind of invisible, but I had a granddad who had Elliott Angle Continentals, new ones every three years, oh, 64, 67. Um, so, you know, I was, I was probably predisposed to like it. And of course we got the, the black label one, the 75 grand one, instead of the 45 grand one. Um, but I have a pair of friends, um, locally who are a couple. One of them is a lawyer and a litigator. And one of them does it for an investment bank. So they have a nice house and they're on their fifth Audi or something like that. Um, and I took the continental, over to them and I said I want and they're interested in cars so I I want to use you guys as a test audience and this is this is great they love this so I said <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what this car is look at it get into it and tell me what you think about it and um so they they look at it from the side and they're like eh, all right and they get in and the black label interior is just gorgeous it's amazing know, the, the ventilated leather seats and it just they did what I think Cadillac would have liked to do and failed miserably. Yes. So, yeah. Um, and they're, they're, they're like, this is really nice. And they got in the backseat and had a lot of room and individually reclining, I don't know, heated and cool, blow cold air up your ass seats, whatever. (laughs) And, um, they're like, what is it? And I'm like, well, what do you think it is? And they look at each other and they look at me and they're like, I don't know. It's, you know, it's obviously not German. They look at their silver Audi next door. Yep, not German. And I'm like, oh, oh, wait. Is this the new, that, that um, you know, that luxury car, the, the, um, the, the, the one from Hyundai? Is this a Genesis? <laughs> Words to crush every Detroit product manager's hopes and dreams. Literally, literally. <laughs> I was like, no, actually, you know, good guess. It's it's a sort of a new or repositioned brand. And they're like, well, what is it? And I said, you obviously didn't get it, but this is the new Lincoln Continental. <laughs> and there was a really long silence. And they looked at me and they looked at each other. And Joe said, oh, that's too bad. And they got out of the car and walked back in the house. What the hell? That's ridiculous. That was it. <laughs> nope. Nope. That's insane to me. I, but we approach these. We know more about the business. Right, right. And we approach these things. <laughs> Lincoln is funny, really, because um, when they introduced the Aviator, they were pleasantly blunt about the tasks. I mean... Mm-hmm. The Detroit 2.5 do not have as big a footprint in the more progressive and coastal markets, which are the entire West Coast and then the Northeast and some cities, Mm -hmm. but basically California. I mean, it is rare, as you know, to see a passenger car from any of the Detroit 
makers on the road. They're oh, there, but, oh, you know. But, right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Toyota Prius was the best-selling passenger car in California for six years in a row, and now it's the Tesla Model 3. What does that tell you? I was going to say, shocker so, there, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. So the, the Lincoln guys said, we understand that we have to get beyond our current buying base we have to become the safe choice for soccer moms mm-hmm. in Pacific Palisades or Darien, Connecticut. I thought that was very, you know, in the same rank as Audi, BMW, Mercedes, and Lexus. Right. And I thought that is a very brave thing to say. I think it's true, but that is a 10, if not 15 year project. It, right. They, they sort of said, we you know. It's brave and okay. it's also open. I mean, it's ballsy to to admit truth, you know, in the automotive industry from where they sit. Now, you'll sometimes find PR people or executives five, ten years down the road start to admit truth about things. But when a product is being launched... They don't launched, get paid to admit truth. They well, get paid to present their side of the case. That's true. You that's that. that's actually a good point. That's a good point. It's usually when they leave that uh, you have a beer with them and they're like, well... <laughs> well, sometimes but, adult beverages help that conversation very much so and i think you and i are both on the same side of like there are things we just don't need to be telling anybody that we've had conversations about with so-and-so you know over the years and but you know i so my mom drives a 2019 750i m sport bmw she's always had escalades for the longest time mainly, mainly ESPs. your mom that's an interesting transition yeah, right. So I told her recently, because I've been trying to kind of push my parents into the hybrid um, or electric market for a long time. My mom does not want to go because um, my parents don't drive a lot in general. My dad drives. My dad uh, actually drives quite a bit. My mom really doesn't drive a lot. And uh, if she does, it, I would say 65 percent of the time I'm now taking her somewhere in her car. <laughs> so I'm like, but, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong, you know, with having an electric car. I mean, I think, I mean, hell, I think a Tesla model three would be just fine for her, but she wants noise. You know, she wants sound. Um, she likes big, you know, big V eight burbles and stuff. Um, but I did tell her recently that cause she wanted to get another Escalade for the 2021. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, instead of that, why don't we look at the new Lincoln aviator hybrid when it comes out? My my mom has this idea that no car is good enough unless it has a V8 and she can just mash the pedal and just, you know, immediately soar down the road, right? Because every once in a while she goes on the highway and she has to, um, you know, come onto the highway and try and get in front of a, you know, an 18-wheeler. So she... <laughs> well, and if she's, if she's like my mom, she goes around the curve too slow yeah. and then has to accelerate. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. Uh, and so I, she's a little hesitant of it, but she really doesn't need a big SUV anymore. She just doesn't, you know, she's not in that world, but she does have two German shepherds that are 80 and 90 pounds. So that's, you know, if we have to take them somewhere, obviously we need something that can fit them. Um, that's why the goddesses made hatchbacks, but carry on. Uh, okay. So my mother hates she she's like okay hatchbacks are okay but I don't want one ever and she hates wagons and I still to this day will never forgive my mother for never buying a Volvo wagon um because all my friends when I was a kid had them 
and I wanted once I wanted my parents to have a Volvo wagon so badly. And my mom hates wagons. So it's, there's like a, there's a small. So instead she drives Escalade. Instead she drives massive ass vehicles that make no sense in, in 99% of the, you know, the point in her life. Oh, uh, well, if you, if you want to drive people like your mom around the, da- around the bend, just come by and say, oh, I was looking for a truck, but all I saw was a bunch of wagons, you know, big and square, <laughs> four door. Oh, that one's yours? That looks like a wagon. <laughs> that would drive her crazy. She'd be like, this is not a wagon. This mm. isn't a wagon. What are you talking about? So, yeah. but uh, kind of uh, going back to the original question, when people ask you about used cars, do you recommend yeah. a hybrid or an electric car? I have no hesitation about recommending used hybrids. The data is now pretty conclusively in and Ford and Toyota hybrids, which are the bulk of them on the market, Mm -hmm. frankly, Mm -hmm. um, the durability of the hybrid gear is fine. There are numerous Priuses and escape hybrids that have done 300 to 400,000 miles in taxi service and they're just fine. So in that sense, the challenge is that the hybrids only exist in a sub-segment of the market. They tend to be small hatchbacks or small sedans or small SUVs. Mm-hmm. Toyota is spreading them out now. In fact, I have a Highlander hybrid in addition to the uh, electric mini that I'm driving. But um, that's kind of the exception, and most hybrids now tend to be C-segment. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the person you're recommending to is comfortable with that, then absolutely. I would have no hesitation about recommending a used hybrid. Don't buy a used taxi, but apart from that, (laughs) um, electric cars are different. And the problem with electric cars is we forget that over 10 years, the average range of an electric car has gone from 75 miles to 200 and X miles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at, let's say, a used Volt, well, plug-in hybrids are different. Let's let's keep it to battery electrics for a minute. Plug-in hybrids are really hard to explain to people who don't already understand what they are, right? Which is a marketing problem. Um, but let's talk about battery electrics. You know, the Nissan Leaf has its problems because they did not liquid cool their battery. But more than that. You may have a, say, five-year-old or six-year-old Nissan Leaf that has fairly low miles, uh, you know, low total mileage that it's covered, but it's got, you know, 75 or 84 miles of range or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and minus a little bit of degradation because all batteries degrade. And if it's really cheap, it's probably down to 60 miles. Who wants a 50-mile car, period? Right. So... You know, in that sense, right now, used electric cars are specialty items simply because of the range problem. Um, The exception to that, of course, is used Teslas. And used Teslas tend to be, um, hold their value much better than any other electric car. One sort of interesting advantage to use Teslas is that some of them come with supercharging for life, right? Um, which the new ones do not. Um, although buying tip, if you go, if you know anyone who is going to buy a Tesla, mm-hmm. tell them to do it in the last three days of any quarter bargain hard and your Tesla store will throw in free supercharging to get you to close the deal. Wow. Really? 
Interesting. Yep. Pro tip. Um, but uh, used Teslas are sort of the exception to that. But a lot of people, for the same reason that people won't buy them new, are even more skeptical about buying a used car from a relatively startup car maker that does not have dealerships every 20 miles along the interstate. Right. Which is understandable. So in that sense, um, you know, I probably, you know, if someone said, buy my 40,000-mile Nissan Leaf that has 60 miles of range on it for 800 bucks, I'd probably buy it. Right. But, you know, not for the, you know, several thousand dollars that it's probably still book valued at. The Mini Electric is interesting. I realized that it was the lowest range electric car sold in the U.S. for 2020. So. Oh, really? What's its, what's its range? It's uh, EPA rated at 110 miles. It came to me in 40-degree weather with 99 miles. E. Okay. And how do you like it? How do you like it otherwise? Um, it's good. I mean, it is a category of cars that sell well in Europe, which is mm-hmm. uh, electric car, smaller electric cars, somewhat urban. Uh, with ranges of say 140 to 175 miles, their their range on the WLTP cycle is actually longer uh, than the EPA range, which reflects more highway driving in okay. America. And um, so it's it's a very good European car. You know, BMW just announced they're not going to launch their all electric X3 here after all. Uh, in part because it probably would have been given a range under 200 miles. Also, it's imported from China, so that's a problem. But, um, you know, it. I think it's going to be part of the BMW lineup for a while, or mini flash BMW lineup, just because they're going to need to sell a certain number of them. So you'll see them running around California in that, but it kind of inherits the position of the Fiat 500e, small, not really a family car, low range. I think the question becomes, does Mini put a ton of cash on the hood to move them in the required numbers as Fiat ended up doing with the 500 e I mean, it was a development prototype. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a real car. Uh, it had no rear seat because there was a large battery in the rear seat. And um, <clears throat> their earliest incarnation of their battery control and driver interface software was sufficiently crude. And it turned out I had gotten one that was an early build that hadn't had the software updated. But the one I drove was so crude that you would accelerate and that was lovely with, you know, fan whirring noises and all the rest. And then you would lift off and the car would do nothing for half a second. And then it would decelerate so violently that you got thrown forward into your seatbelt. Oh, wow. Uh, it was, it was crude. Um, so, but they put them out there. They got a bunch of people. They got the data that showed how people actually use electric cars and mm-hmm. how they charge them. And that was really the purpose of the exercise. And I actually, uh, so I drove one 
out in LA and it, uh, it died on me in the middle of the drive. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awkward. So they had to, uh, I was with one of their, you know, one of their people and he's like, please, please do not tell anybody, you know, like when they got there, they picked us up in another mini. Um, they actually put a giant, like a giant tarp over it and they were working on it underneath of the tarp. So nobody could see what was going on. Um, and then they took us back. Uh, I think we were, I think they took us back in like an X five or whatever. Cause another mini E showed up and then they had an X five or whatever. And they took us back. They took me back to the, uh, uh, back to the, um, uh, parking garage where they, you know, where they had all the cars right. and, uh, they were just like, look, please, whatever, like, what do you, what do you want to keep this, you know, a secret. I was like, well, I don't really want anything. I mean, I get it. It's a diamond, gold jewelry, <laughs> Pacific Island. I should, have, I should have started saying everything. I was like, but no, I was like, look, I, I get it. It's a development car. Like, you, you know, yeah, shit's going to happen. You know, it's just, it is what it is. I don't, you know, I, I didn't mind the driving of it, you know? Um, but yes, yeah, so I never told anybody that until actually just now, just you were the first person wow. I ever actually mentioned that to. Huh. Yeah. I'm honored. Well, I think there's a 10 year rule and yeah. I'm, I, tr- I'm going to, I'm going to invoke the eight year rule, <laughs> which is, um, so Fisker, uh, finally did their, their test drive of the karma. Mm-hmm. Remember the, Oh yeah. yeah. But they had, before I went on that event, which was actually quite late in the year, um, they had brought one to the New York auto show that April and they were, they were, doing sort of drives in it. So I went out with the Fisker PR guy in the seat next to me, and we won't mention names, but you know who he is mm-hmm. probably. He's, he's still in the business. And um, we were driving around, and I think we were just about coming up to um, Grant's Tomb, which is a good place in Manhattan to photograph cars, Grant's Tomb and up, up near there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the dash just goes completely black. All of the dash, all of the dashboard, all of the controls just goes away. Oh, no. Look at the PR person. Car is still running. You know, it's like, um, so that? <laughs> and he says, oh, well, you know what? Why don't you pull over here into this space, and we'll just turn off the car and let it go to sleep. And then when we switch it on and reboot in about five minutes, everything will be fine. And meanwhile, I can tell you about some of the features of the car. I thought, okay, smooth reply. Yeah. Well done. Um, so that's what we did. And, but I said, um, so this car has been on sale. You're delivering these for a few months now. How do your early customers and advocates feel about things like this happening? Because he'd said it had happened before. And they're like, oh, they're excited to be able to participate in the development process of this new and revolutionary <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Mm, maybe. Yeah. Mm, right. I just, you know, I personally, I love when I'm driving my personal car, which is a GT350, I love when I'm driving it down the street and the wheels just decide to fly off of it because, you know, it's a development thing. You know, it's just, uh, as a customer, yeah. I want to take part in that if I can. 
You know, I, exactly. <laughs> I'm hoping the transmission it's falls It's exciting out. to help Ford. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's exciting to help a multi-billion dollar company develop something. It's just, you know, look, I feel a part of the process. I feel like well, I'm being Especially useful. with a luxury vehicle. Yeah, especially with a luxury vehicle. does it all the time, you know. <laughs> you know, Mercedes, psh, I've been in an S-Class yeah. where, the, where the whole, you know, command system just stopped working, fell out of the car. It was fine. I felt great about it. Yeah. It happens. Only yeah. one hundred and twenty thousand anyway. dollars. It was fine. No, that's that's funny. It you know it is. Yeah. And you and I obviously you've 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 been in this business. I feel like a little bit more of a higher up than than I ever have been. Um, which by the way, back I'm, in my day, Sonny, things were different. <laughs> we had to crank start the cars. They could break your arms. <laughs> Somebody told me that recently when I said you know. I still love a manual gearbox. I still prefer a manual for any car, you know, that I personally own. And somebody said, oh, do you crank it too? And I was like, man, what a dick. That actually has become my sort of standard reflex in some <laughs> of these Facebook discussions because, yes, manual gearboxes. And I've found that you can shut down this sort of reflexive whining by saying, you know what? Cars have been getting worse and worse for years. It all started in 1912 when that infernal Charles Kettering invented the damn electric self-starter. As soon as a car couldn't break your arm just to get it going, everything started going downhill. Everything built since 1912 is shit. And you know what? People stop commenting. So you are the second person. So before I talked to you, I was talking to Jamie Kitman earlier this morning. Mm -hmm. um, and you're the second person today of two people that have said something about uh, Kettering. So you're, you're oh. the, what'd you say? I said, Oh, yeah. I'm honored. Yeah. He was talking about, uh, Jamie was talking about him driving around the country, proposing ethanol and then it turning to lead gasoline. And then yeah. now you're talking about the, uh, the self-starter. So the whole, he was an incredibly influential man, but the whole leaded gasoline thing is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it is. Jamie, I did, you know, I didn't know most of that story. And when Jamie was telling me about it, I was like, wow, that's, that's remarkable. I didn't know most of this. And, uh, the, it's fascinating. And, and Jamie and I got into this and you and I can get into this later, especially when it comes to electric cars and that market. It's amazing what seeing a profit will do for your conscience. Mm. You know what I mean? Or will do to your conscience in a sense. Um, it happens obviously in politics, happens in business, you know, happens in our current society, you know. Um, we, you know, obviously we can, <laughs> we could go off the rails talking about medicine and, you know, healthcare and everything under the sun. But, um, so I'm going to, so the, the conversation we had with about the mini, I'm going to kind of put that in the middle. Cause I want to start off with a simple question for you that I've been asking everybody, especially people, you know, being in a situation where you are. So now, okay. So two cars, two hybrids that I, I long said that I would purchase used, be happy to purchase used. Uh, one is the old original Honda fit with the manual gearbox. Um, because they make uh, they make kits where you can change out the the batteries for them, right? Um, do you mean the the? I mean, uh, not sorry, the fit the insight. Sorry, yeah. the Honda Insight. Sorry, insight. I don't know okay. why I said fit. Sorry, the original two seater. Yes, the original little yeah. hatchback two seater. Uh, just because yes. they make which such... are actually 
Go ahead. Which are actually becoming incredible collectors' cars. That's why I, did I want not one. realize. Ah, all right. And they only made like seventeen thousand of them over yeah. six years, maybe about so, that. Yeah, total. And yeah. that's I I, th- I I always thought they were kind of neat, kind of cool, you know. Uh, um, but I you know they they're I think there's one or two companies out there that make. Uh, basically they do a battery swap. You send them yours and they, uh, send you theirs and adds more horsepower and whatnot. But the other car is a Chevy Volt. Mm. And I've, I've only said that because, uh, I don't know if it was green car reports or somebody else that had a guy who had a 200 and some odd thousand mile volt from the first generation. And they tested the battery degradation and it hadn't gone down more than I think like a 10th of a percent or 1% or something like that. I think it was 1% that had gone down. Over that, that. Well, there's an update on that car actually. Oh, is there? Uh, okay. Known affectionately amongst utter geeks as Sparky. Um, <laughs> it was bought by a UAW worker who got relocated. His plant shut down and he got relocated to a plant that was, I don't know, a couple hundred miles away or something. Mm -hmm. And for various reasons having to do with family needs and his wife's job and his kids' needs, he decided to commute rather than uh, move. And so I can't remember if he drove it every day or maybe, you know, stayed there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I don't remember what the deal was exactly, but he finally put over 400,000 miles on that volt he and his wife sat down and did the cheap bastard approach they spreadsheeted it out and they said what gm car can we buy at our discount that will give me the lowest commuting costs if i end up commuting 200 miles each way every day or whatever it was um you know how do we minimize our costs and the volt turned out to be it if I remember, he only really covered about 40% of his miles on electricity right. simply because it only has you know, a 40, 45 mile, 45 mile range at most. At most. Yeah. Um, but it got 37 or 38 miles a gallon otherwise. Right. And so that was what he did. And that car, that car was very eagerly followed. If I remember the story, he did start to have battery problems somewhere around 400,000 miles. <laughs> but that is such a tiny percentage of the <laughs> right. duty cycle of a car that I think you're allowed. GM historically has had very, very solid batteries. Um, they're very conservative on their battery life and battery design. And they really took seriously the idea that this, this battery has to last for the average lifespan of a car, which mm-hmm. is, you know, 12 years and 150,000 miles. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I really thought a, a, a used Volt would be just a, a good, simple purchase. If I ever need a car that I just don't have to necessarily care about, you know, because I can plug it in most days. I don't drive more than 40 miles, you know? Okay. Um, but the thing is that I, so I was very hesitant of the Volt when it first came out. Cause I thought 40 miles, this is just stupid. This is kind of ridiculous. And Chevrolet would not send me a Volt to review. But luckily, uh, a family friend of ours owns a Chevy dealership. So call him up. Can I have a Volt for a week? Yeah, sure. Um, As long as when you review it, you say it came from the dealership. Fine by me. Perfect. You know, whatever. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to drive from my small um, little, you know, kind of backwoods town I'm going to drive into the big city of Raleigh using nothing but back roads. 
mm-hmm. going to drive past Raleigh. I'm going to see how far I can get on the back roads using electricity. And then I'm going to drive back on the highway because I know that the battery will, will be depleted. And at that point, mm-hmm. I want to see how it drives on the highway with basically the engine running and charging the battery, you know? So that's what I did. I I did over that week, I did, I think about, uh, I don't know, about 300 miles on it. And at the end of the week, when I gave it back to the dealership, I went, this is brilliant. This is a, <laughs> this is a really good car. And the fact that GM were offering such convincing leasing on it, I was like, man, consider my opinion changed. And so ever yeah. since, I've always thought the Volt was a really good vehicle. I wish that it had 80 miles of electric range, you know, um, plus the, the the gas engine. But I thought, you know, this is really not a bad deal. It's a good car. It was comfortable. I would I would say the second generation Volt got to where you needed to be, which was 53 miles of mm-hmm. range mm-hmm. and over 40 miles a gallon uh, EPA fuel economy rating. Um, in that, you know, 53 miles covers something like 85% of the miles that a car covers, or 85% of the cars in the U.S. cover less than 53 miles a day. So it really, for most people's uses, and you don't have to worry about charging. Here's the problem with plug-in hybrids. I mean, I'm a big, big Volt fan. Um, the problem is marketing them and explaining them Mm -hmm. to people who are not technical, who just want a car Mm -hmm. um, and who are still willing to buy a C-segment hatchback with very tight rear seats. Right. Um, when you say to people, it's a plug-in hybrid, they're like, Oh, okay. I get that. Like a Prius (laughs) people have sort of internalized how a hybrid works right it's you, you use it just like a regular car but magic gerbils under the hood drink <laughs> okay right. great so like and you're like okay yeah it's like a prius it's a hybrid it's very fuel efficient but it's also partly electric so you can plug it in and not use gas at all people are like oh okay so it's an electric car how far does it go <laughs> And when you say 35 miles, they're like, wait, why don't, why would I want a 35 mile electric? That's ridiculous. And you've lost them. Right. Right. Explaining that you do one thing first and then you do another thing is a really, really difficult marketing Mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. People get hybrids and they get battery electric cars. It's just like your phone. It runs on a battery. You got to plug it in every night. And when the battery is exhausted, it doesn't work anymore. People get that. Um, Plug-in hybrids, which are both at the same time, are really confusing. You're absolutely right. And that that is a larger issue at hand with, uh, with American car buyers and American car companies with just even their sedans. You know, I mean, yeah. terrible marketing. Uh, very little marketing, you know, not a lot of them are sitting in the press fleets to be shown off, you know? Um, well, they don't make any, anymore. well, no, they don't make them anymore, but even when they did, it was like, you know, it was like pulling teeth to try and get, uh, most of the sedans to, you know, to even review, um, yeah. trucks are more profitable. Trucks and, are way more know, profitable. It, I mean, America, a lot of this has to do with the, the macro look 
Um, I am starting to think that America has already lost the electric car wars globally. Um, That's a shame. That's true. Well, I mean, yes, Tesla, but I'm not convinced that Tesla won't be a predominantly China-focused company. Oh, well, yeah, right, yeah. Um, So if you look at the data from last year, China bought more electric cars than the rest of the world added together. Um, And that's because 15 years ago, the Chinese government set a government industrial goal as follows. We want to own the world's largest share of production mm-hmm. of photovoltaic solar cells for clean energy. Mm-hmm. That one's done. Take that one off. We want to own the world's largest share of production of lithium-ion batteries. That one's in process. They don't have the, you know, the Six Sigma degree of uh, quality yet, but they will get there, and they're probably already the largest cell producer. Um, I haven't seen the data lately, but they will get there. And we want to be the world's largest producer of cars that plug in. And they are doing that by using a few carrots and a whole lot of really big sticks Mm -hmm. because the Chinese government does that. Europeans now are really serious about electric cars because they believe in science and their governments have said, we will reduce carbon dioxide output. Um, and they were going to do that with diesels, but we know how that story ends. <laughs> right. um, they are now very serious about electric cars, as witness Volkswagen's really high investment into electric cars. So that's China and that's Europe. China's driving the bus. Europe is coming up strong and really serious about it. But then there are the two countries that exist on our continent, America and California. Um America has no energy policy, no emissions policy. Its only uh, carbon policy appears to be to privilege domestic fossil fuel production. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a president uh, who has said that um, climate change is a Chinese hoax designed to hurt America. Um, and we also have 70 years of zoning that has built extremely low-density, widely dispersed suburban and exurban housing, where by law, residences must be separated from both jobs and where you buy stuff, up to and including a half gallon of milk. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a vehicle to buy milk, and you probably have to drive five miles to do that. You know, Europe has some of that, China is starting in on that, but that is the dominant development mode in America and mm-hmm. has been since about 1950. Right. We have no functional mass transit outside of a few cities, and we most importantly do not have high-speed trains between logical city pairs, say 200 to 300 miles away, which they do have in Europe and China. So we don't think anything of driving four hours to get from city A to city B. And we're not going to fly it because flying is expensive and the airports are paying the ass. Right. All of those things. Oh, and we have laughably cheap fuel by comparison to either of those two uh, entities that I mentioned. Right. All of those things add up to there is far less incentive. There's far less will and there's far less incentive 
for Americans to buy electric cars or for the Detroit two and a half to market electric cars to them. So I am, you know, Tesla aside, Tesla hasn't really broken into the mass market yet. There are some signs that it's starting to, but it still, you know, the average American new car buyer only does it every five and a half years. Right. The percentage of Americans who can buy a new car is steadily waning. Is getting is and, in decline, you know, yeah. Yeah, because the average transaction price, I just saw the data this morning, 37.7. Um, so while we sold 17 million new vehicles last year, we sold 40 million used vehicles. Right. Electric cars aren't really there yet. We talked a little bit about Teslas. But, you know, I am not at all convinced that the Detroit two and a half are, in fact, serious about electric cars. If you look at GM's recent EV day, and I did an article, my first article on the drive was actually about this topic, saying essentially GM has a lot to prove to show that it's serious about EVs because they've already screwed it up three times. Um, so, you know, yes, they had all these vehicles, but I'm not convinced that that wasn't as much about boosting their stock price and getting some of that lovely Tesla stock love as it was a serious commitment to transforming into electric vehicles at high volumes. Are you trying to tell me that the Cadillac ELR is not the greatest car of the last 20 years? There's that hint of sarcasm, (laughs) son. We've warned you about that. The ELR is actually a fascinating story. Um, so do tell for the well for the the non-geeks amongst us <laughs> the chevy volt came out plug-in hybrid um and there was a really pretty concept car that was a two-door coupe version of that car as the cadillac oh hell it was the uh with a C. what was the concept name Ooh. i'm trying to think of the concept yeah, it, it ended with a Q because they all did. Cadillac anyway, Evoke. whatever it was called. Evo. Yep. Evo? Provo? Was it Evo? Eh. Let me see now. Now I'm I don't think so because that's all that's a Range Rover name now. Um Oh, right, right. Anyway, right. Was, whatever it was called. It, it, so the um huh, Oh, the, the the Evoque was the uh was the or the EVOQ. I forgot. That was the um the uh Cadillac uh, um Oh God! What um, the convert the hardtop convertible? Um, oh, okay, yeah, the big one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Black, black, my parents even and, had one. Uh, well, it was a, it was a pretty little concept, and was shown in about it was shown in about twenty ten or twenty eleven, I think, at Detroit. Everybody said, "Oh, that's a really handsome little coupe," and that was that was after GM, you know. GM had introduced the Volt with a V, um, and Lutz protected the Volt program, which the White House task force wanted to kill. And so GM went bankrupt and got restructured and with government backing and so on and so forth. And you may remember they cycled through a whole bunch of uh, CEOs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at one point, it was clear that they were losing a lot of money on each first-generation Volt with a V that they were selling. And how do we 
they had big hopes for it, but the marketing never followed. And it was a complicated thing to explain, as we talked about. So they ended up selling about 20000 a year. You know, how do we spread the cost of this technology over a broader base? All right, well, we have another model that we could easily do, this pretty little coupe. All right, put that one into production, but this time make it a Cadillac and make it really nice. And that way we can sell it for a higher price. And the CEO at that time is rumored to have said, I don't care what you price it at, but you cannot lose money on a marginal basis on that car. Or maybe he said, you have to make a certain profit. So that was the car, a small two-door coupe with, I don't know, 32 miles of electric range or something. Mm -hmm. And two-door coupes have been a dying segment for 30 years, for God's sakes. Um, It came out, and it was pitched as a Tesla Model S competitor. <laughs> Cadillac is going to show Tesla what for, and it was priced at seventy-five grand. And people literally didn't believe it; they thought it was a typo. You know, maybe forty-five grand, maybe right. forty-nine-five, um, seventy-five grand. I think over the total life of that program, because I followed sales back then, I believe they sold fewer than 3,000 ELRs, which will make them truly awesome collector cars in about 20 years. But um, talk about a misfire. And it was because the CEO at the time simply said, we're not losing money on that car. Make it profitable. So... Uh, it was the Cadillac Converge, by the way, with a J. Converge, yes. 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 Oh, and, didn't end in a Q, though. My bad. Okay. But a lot of them, well, I feel like I feel like every concept car the last 500 years ends with a Q. So I, I think you're mm-hmm. forgiven there. But that, that is an interesting story because I feel like I've, I, I, Cadillac is a, is a weird story for me because I think they make very good cars or they have made good cars. And again, it's the marketing. Which one? Oh, I'm talking about like, you know, ATS, CTS, you know, kind of like the current stuff. Um, I've heard the CT five. I just had Johnny Lieberman on, uh, yesterday and he said the CT five V was really good. Um, but interesting. Cause I was not a fan of the CT five or the CT six, but I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the way they look. Well, I, I'm kind of, I'm hit or miss with sorry. how they look. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I'm getting, because of their stupid alphamerics, which I guess are going to go away, I'm thinking of their SUVs. Oh, the XT5 the five five and, the and the 6. Yeah, those are... XT5 and 6. Sorry. The no, CTs are okay. Yeah. The, the XT5 yeah. and 6 are terrible. Awful. In fact, Johnny yeah. was 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 making that comparison yesterday, too. Like, just cars good. good SUVs, no. <laughs> no good. Yeah. Cars, good. SUVs, yeah. no good from Cadillac. And I don't understand the interiors at all. Back no, to our discussion they're, about Lincoln. They're terrible, <laughs> except for the new Escalade. I'm like, they finally made an Escalade interior that actually looks good. But I have this theory that after 10,000 miles, every Escalade that you think is great is the most boring car in the world from inside, mm. the, inside the car. Only because my mom has had a, a baker's dozen of them at this point. And every time I get in, I'm like, oh, this is great. And I drive it. You know, I, I used to, they had this 2009 that we put over like 120,000 miles on whatever. And 
It was after 10, 15,000 miles, the suspension was horrible. Every single one of their Escalades. Wow. After 15,000 miles, suspension is the worst thing in the world. You, it it drives like hell. It's the weirdest thing. I don't get it. Um, huh. Well, I'm in general a big fan of GM trucks. When I left my job in May 2018, almost the first thing I did was fly to Phoenix, buy a pre-selected very old, very high mileage suburban off a used car lot, fill it with seventy year old car parts and drive around the country visiting friends. Yeah, so how did so, that how did that work out? What 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 was the worked out brilliantly. Um it huh, I got a two thousand and two suburban. It had to be a suburban because I had an engine on a pallet three fenders, two doors, and several boxes of parts. And I didn't want to do a pickup because they could be stolen out of the, out of a hotel because I stay at cheap hotels. Um, so it had to be lockable and it had to be a four wheel drive suburban Mm -hmm. because those are always popular here in upstate. Mm -hmm. So I got this 2002, uh, suburban that had obviously been kept under a carport because the paint wasn't fried like most of them are in Phoenix. You know, it didn't have that patchy right, stuff. Right, didn't have that, yeah. yeah. Seats were trash, but all the leather always fragments. and had 220,000 miles on it. But it ran, and it was cheap, relatively. Did it run well, um, or was it just it just It ran, just ran. well enough. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the, all the drive modes worked, which was important. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. What I didn't realize was 2002 was the last year for that truck series, I think they're GMT 800s, were they? Mm-hmm. I forget the codes. I think, But yeah. for that truck series, they had a massive mid-cycle upgrade. And this was the last year before the upgrade. I didn't realize that until that upgrade, all the GMC, tr- all the GM trucks <laughs> used 1950-style recirculating ball steering. They didn't have racks. Oh, I didn't know that. And I... Either did I until I started turning corners and realized that I had about seven inches of free play on top <laughs> dead center of the steering wheel. Now, it was a great trip. A buddy of mine came out and we drove for a week. He planned the part. We went to Vegas. We went to Death Valley. We went to Yosemite. Um, but hustling that Suburban through all of the mountain passes up 8,600 feet and down again uh, to get to Yosemite and beyond was exciting because basically you had to turn it enough where it healed over on the springs, dial out all of the loose parts, aim for your turn, and then go through the turn, straighten up, rinse and repeat. Um, <laughs> but it, no problems whatsoever. Emergency brake didn't work, but so be it. Um, it drove me 6,800 miles and I sold it for more than I paid for it in upstate New York because no one had ever seen a totally rust-free 2002 Suburban. That's remarkable. So it was, I'm very happy that I, that I did it. And I'm, you know, my belief in GM big trucks was kind of validated. And so that, that also brings me to, uh, cause believe it or not, you actually segued perfectly because I was going to ask you about that next. And then, but this brings me into, you have a host of, of older cars and you've built a garage to house them. We talked about that earlier. You have, you know, your dream garage that you have kind of built over the years. Uh, or you mentioned it earlier. And what'd you say? Priorities. 
Priorities, exactly. House exactly. hasn't fallen down yet. <laughs> so how long did so your your garage is your dream garage it's called the garage mm-hmm. mahal right mm-hmm. and named by the better half i should observe <laughs> so when did you what made you start building it what's in it you know how like how much better is it than your actual house is there a bed um there isn't a bed it doesn't have plumbing um although we put in the uh the provisions for it uh in part because we'd have to bring in and rock hammer a trench across mm. um the, the area i live in is basically entirely broken shale um there's a very thin layer of dirt on top of it but mm-hmm. catskills farmers the ones who were foolish enough not to just give up there was a saying two rocks for every dirt oh and, i've heard um, i've actually heard that saying <laughs> yeah well that's here so um <laughs> Put in infrastructure with some care because I spent two days listening to a rock hammer um, <laughs> just for the foundation. Anyway, but um, I was lucky enough to be part of High Gear Media, and, and that was this anomaly of a, a an automotive content company that was financed by venture capital. It started out as one thing. It turned into something else, but we were lucky enough to be able to sell the company, of which I had a very tiny piece um, and that helped build the garage that I had been envisioning for many years. Um, part of the reason I am the custodian of now two cars that my dad bought new, um, a 1960 Morris Minor Traveler, which is a small British car uh, that is the last genuine woody wagon built in the world. Wow. The bodywork behind the uh, front doors is all framed in American ash. It has aluminum panels screwed to it. Um, They built 215,000 of them and undoubtedly lost money on every one, but that would be the British motoring industry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it only has 54,000 miles, but they were hard miles and the bulk of the underneath has been uh, replaced with new panels uh, to deal with rust it's in having some of the last of that done now. Um, it should have been done about now, but there's this health crisis thing going on. Um, so there's that. Um, and then the second time we were in London, um, my dad had what he turned a midlife crisis and went out and bought a brand new 1967 Sunbeam Alpine, uh, the two seat, uh, it's not really a sports car like an MGB. It's more of a touring convertible. Mm-hmm. And it's better known in America for its version, the Sunbeam Tiger, which was the same car with the 1800cc uh, four-cylinder replaced by a big honking Ford V8. Um, and uh, the Alpine, which my dad took great care of, uh, turned over uh, 28,000 miles when we drove it from my house, from his house to mine. Uh, it's never been out in the salt, never been out in the snow. It's, it's a lovely little car. Um, so those are two of the five more or less. Um, and they're really sort of family heirlooms. I have the Riley 1.5 that I drove in college in California it's no one's heard of Riley's. They died in 1969. Another piece of the British motoring industry, RIP. But um, think of it as essentially a um, late 50s BMW 3 Series. Small four-door sedan, leather seats, 
wooden dashboard, high performance. They rallied them in Monte Carlo for a while. Very unusual car to find in the States. They only brought them in for a year, but this was a rust-free California example. Um, so that's that. Um, I have a, every, every car guy should have a ridiculous, hideously complex, horrifyingly expensive rotisserie restoration in his life, and I have mine. Hasn't been done yet, but it's the oldest Morris Minor con- uh, convertible in the country, in fact, in North America. Uh, hideously rusty, but a car that is so old that it had no turn signals and it had side screens instead of windows. Um, so that, um, and then I had my Radwood car, which still makes me grin. Um, if I say Isuzu Impulse wagon back or Geo Storm wagon back, does that ring any bells? Rings a bell to me. Only because okay. I actually I've seen pictures of of your Zuzu and I I love yeah. it. I okay. think these are cool cars. Yeah. I'm I'm it makes me hugely happy. So, but a little corporate history is needed here. Um, Isuzu was one of many small car makers in Japan, uh, sort of of the ilk of Mazda and Mitsubishi mm-hmm. and Daihatsu and Suzuki. Um. And GM bought a chunk of them, or maybe the whole company, largely for their truck expertise. They're still well-known for making commercial trucks. But um, they had made a series of pretty interesting cars. And there was one called the Isuzu Impulse, the first generation, that was a Jujaro design called the Ace of Clubs that was reputedly created to be the second generation VW Scirocco and then VW decided not to do it. I don't, I, there's some confusion over that story, but Isuzu made very interesting vehicles, including trucks. The most interesting of which is the Via Cross, which oh, was yeah. a two door, highly styled sport truck. Um, that it looks like nothing else. It looks like a prop from a dystopian movie, basically. Um, but uh, because GM owned them, they decided in 19, the late 1980s to separate out their small imported cars from the Chevrolet brand and build this thing called Geo. Geo was this weird brand, but every Chevy dealer had it. It was and so weird to, when you saw it on the lot or in the showroom. And they were, they were from everywhere. Yep. You had the Geo Tracker, which mm-hmm. was a Suzuki little SUV. Yep. You had the Geo Storm, which was an Isuzu Impulse badly decontented. <laughs> you had the Geo Prism, which was an uglier Toyota Corolla yeah. built in the shared GM Toyota plant. And there was a, oh, and the Geo Metro, yep. which was a Suzuki mini car. Just this weird collection of stuff pasted together by a badge. I anyway, remember when they became Chevrolet, the Chevy Prism and the Chevy Tracker, yeah. and it was like, what the hell? Well, and they finally, you know, they brought it into one place. But <laughs> um, <laughs> so in 1991, I, among other things, I used to uh, help put on a British car meet in California. So I was out in California, and I needed a rental car, and I went to my local place, and I rented a geo storm, but instead of being the coupe, it's actually a hatchback, but instead of being this sort of 
fastback coupe that everybody thinks of when you say Geostorm. It was this thing called a wagonback, which was a little two-door wagon um, with a squarish roof. Um, and as it turned out, my brother from a different company had rented the same car in a different color. <laughs> so we showed up totally unbeknownst to each other with a red one and a black one of the wagon bash. And we ran them around and we discovered that you could take out the rear windows completely. You can? You can actually remove them from the car and run open air if you want. No way. Yep. Is it easy or is it difficult or is it? Um, there's a little latch that you, you have to sort of learn the trick, but it's how they assembled them. They just didn't break off, you know, a little piece of plastic to prevent it from happening again. Oh so you just God. fiddle with the latch and squeeze it, and um, the window comes out, which is fun. That's um, party that's, trick. That's really rad. But the, the best thing was we took one of the cars, I think it was the black one, and all the geo stuff was stick-on. It was all plastic stuff with adhesive on the back. So we took off every single geo badge on the entire car. We took off the, the Hertz plate frame we sprayed the wheel covers flat black and we started asking people what it was and no one had a clue the most common answer was is it a sob but <laughs> anyway so i've always had a fondness for wagon backs because i like to go wagons fast forward the whole redwood thing comes up and i start to think you know i turn 60 i should really like do this stuff my dad's advice was this, to do the stuff you enjoy while you can still enjoy it, all right? Mm -hmm. so I'm like, you know what? I should start looking for a wagon back. And I looked and I looked and I looked. There's a lot of rusty junk out there because like any Japanese car from 1990, they rusted. Right. And I happened to come across through a friend, not a Geostorm wagon back, which is what I'd been searching for, but the much rarer Isuzu Impulse version of the same car because they were both sold here. But... The Isuzu was much better because it hadn't been decontented. It had the dual overhead cam engine, and it had Lotus-tuned suspension, because Lotus was part of the GM empire back then, too. Right. Yeah. It handles like a roller skate. It's wonderful. No one's ever seen a wagon back in the flesh, or even in pictures, it seems. And I took it to Radwood, Boston, where it, it either pissed or dribbled rain for the whole show. <laughs> And people went wild. It was the most rewarding car I've had in a while. Because people like the old cars, the Morrises and stuff, but now they're kind of aging out. And the right. people who remember them from childhood are 75. This was a car from 1991 that no one had seen. So, and it's, you know, and it's a little more practical. It's funny because I'd never so, seen one until I, I saw you uh, bought one and started putting it on Facebook. And I was like, oh my God. Because I, I, I knew it as the Geo, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, as uh, yeah, I knew it as the Geo, and I forgot that they made a an Isuzu version. Mm -hmm. And because I was a kid and I saw a lot of that stuff, and because I, I was obsessed, my my whole, whole family is obsessed with GM cars. So, oh. so I I had been around dealerships for so long, and I I I'd seen them, and I remembered seeing them as a young kid as a young pup i mean i was only you know between four and six years old when i saw them but i remembered being old enough to to know what they were because my three older my older siblings i'm the youngest by eight eleven and twelve years 
Oh, wow. So okay. I, I grew up pretty fast. I kind of had to. They were, And they were in car buying mode at that point. Yeah, basically, right? So I knew exactly what they were. So when you when you put it on Facebook, I was like, this is brilliant. Because my favorite, to, to this day, my favorite car mm-hmm. commercials are Joe Azuzu. <laughs> who is actually in the Azuzu group on Facebook. The actor who is Joe no. Azuzu is an honored member. Yeah, is he really? His name is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Do you know Adam Barrera? Yeah, I know Adam. Yeah. Okay. Adam has the rare Impulse RS, the turbo all-wheel drive version. Yeah. Um, Adam somehow figured out who the actor was, tracked him down on Facebook, and asked him to join and be an honored <laughs> guest, and he is. His name is David Leisure, by the way. Yes. Yes. Him. Exactly. And he's he's in random things. He plays these random roles, and he always has this goofy smile and this very upbeat, um, like annoyingly upbeat personality in a lot of things, right? Um, because he was in the airplane movies, because I remembered him from oh, that. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I knew nothing about David Leisure, but... As the, as the show tune goes, you got to have a gimmick if you want to get ahead. He was great. He was great. I loved him. And Joe Zuzu is my favorite my favorite car commercials to date. <laughs> my absolute favorite is the speeding bullet from the eighties, still with the uh-huh. with the impulse turbo. Still to me the best commercial ever ever made because I'm like it's so <laughs> stupid, but it's the greatest thing ever done. Because for me. Commercials are best when they're pointless. It's just doing something dumb for the for the sake of you remembering the product. And that's how I always remembered Azuzu as being truly dorky. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. I love dorky it things. Was, it was great counter-programming. And people still remember Joe Azuzu. The, the challenge for Azuzu really was that they had a very, very thin dealer network, mm-hmm. kind of like Mitsubishi today, yep. you know, or Kia four years ago. Um, whereas GM had Geos in every deal, every Chevy dealer around yep. the country. The interesting thing was what really killed Asuzu's passenger car business. That they made a corporate decision to get out of passenger cars and just do trucks. It was the Japanese bubble economy in mm-hmm. 1992. They had to keep the plant that made impulses and storms open for an extra year just to complete their GM contract to provide three years worth of storms. Oh, no. Yeah. They would have shut it down the year before, but GM's like, nope, got to keep them rolling. So, oh, my <laughs> car, weirdly enough is not an American impulse wagon back. It's a Canadian. I was going to ask you if it was a Canadian that was imported because they're so rare. Yeah. It well, and from Quebec, no less where road salt is not unfamiliar. Right. But it, it it was, it has a little bit of rust, but nothing, nothing major. Uh, But being Canadian, it has um, no air conditioning. (laughs) It has a rear window wiper. Um, it has no ABS, and um, in addition to the speedo in kilometers per hour, it has it, it gets rid of the extra weight of an airbag. The Canadians did not take <laughs> airbags from 1991. What? That's crazy. Yep. That's hilarious. Yep. That's quite ridiculous. But, uh, I, you know, I I love that. I lo- I love that. I love the Radwood culture because I love that these unloved 
kind of, you know, dorky or nerdy cars that are so actually very cool are just, mm -hmm. they're finding an audience because I, I don't know if you remember this. There was an old cartoon, like short film. I'm trying to remember. I don't think it was a Disney thing, but it was, um, it was a car that was, it was a cartoon car that uh, got basically like used and abused and thrown away. It was found in a junkyard and it's like a, um, like this kid kind of buys it and then, uh, makes it, turns it into like a hot rod sort of thing. And it's like the, but this car had a personality all along. Okay. So the, obviously the headlights were eyeballs and the grill was the face. And it was, um, ever since then, I, I thought cars had personalities. I saw it when I was a young, young child. And ever since then, I always thought, oh, they have personalities. They have feelings, you know, they have, and so, of course, then Toy Story comes along when I'm, you know, like, what, 10 yep. years old, 12 yep. years old, whatever it is. And that was like, I always knew my toys talked back, you know, that sort of thing. And <laughs> and then so all through my life, I mean, I'll be 34 in May. I'm still a young pup. But for me, cars have a personality, and I, I feel bad for my cars. Like, I actually, every single one of my cars, when I've sold them or traded them for something else, I actually, it's 100% true, and it is potentially psychotic, but I will take 15 minutes by myself just to talk to my car and say goodbye because I think it's, it's, it, it's stupid to 99.9% .9 of people. But to me, it's important because I build a relationship with the cars, you know? And to me, when Radwood came along, I was like, this is cool. So you're, you know, all of your, your eclectic collection of, of cars that most people wouldn't have. But people like me appreciate that somebody is willing to go the, the extra mile to keep them and have them and, and appreciate them and enjoy them. Well, there's there's kind of two things. The, the first one for me, I didn't realize, because we always had the, the cars in our family, mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much people respond to the family stories. And I, yeah. you know, I wrote a little thing that I'll post in the window, and we have family photos over 60 years. Mm -hmm. So there's a photo of my little brother at age, you know, 15 months being pushed in a swing where the Morris Woody's in the background by my mother, who was then uh, <clears throat> 32 and is now a lady of a certain age. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'll put these pictures up and people go wild yeah, because there is that. I mean, if it were a more expensive car, it would be called Provenance. As it is, it's just, you know, the history. Right. But my little brother, when he comes to the car meets, just gets the biggest kick out of sort of seeing. And a lot of times the family will, will see it and the parents will read it to like a four-year-old boy or something. And my brother will walk over and say, so, you know, I'm actually part of this family. Can you find me in that picture? And he's the little blonde kid in spectacles who's <laughs> barely tall enough to be seen behind the fender of the car. <laughs> and he's six foot three now. So <laughs> they, they love that. He just gets the biggest kick out of it. So the family thing is nice. I mean, we hang on to stuff as a family. But Radwood has been a revelation for me because the cars that I've been into for basically 50 years, mm -hmm. which is mostly British cars of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially on the earlier end of that now, cars age out. And the theory with collector cars was always you are most into the cars that are plus or minus 
10 years from your birth date. Because when you were a kid, they were the ones that kind of imprinted on you. Yes. Well, the people who are plus or minus 10 years from a 1950 Morris Minor are now dying. And the ones from the 60s and even 70s, in some part, have turned into angry, reactionary, grumpy, not interested in change old men. And they're just not as fun to hang around with (laughs) as when they were 34 and, you know, the Radwood crowd now. So going to Radwood where everybody was happy and no one was complaining about incorrect stitching on a seat pattern was awesome. Besides, when in my life would I see a Renault Encore with its original window sticker parked behind a Sterling 827 SI. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing when I, I haven't been to a Redwood yet. And, but when I see the pictures, I just look around and go, this is, this is remarkable. This is, I was born in 86 and mm-hmm. I, you know, like I said, I have three older siblings. Uh, my youngest older brother is eight years older is, is a big car guy. So he and I really okay. kind of piled around, even though we're eight years different. Um, and my dad's a big car guy. My brother, my my oldest brother, my sister, they like cars, but not as much as we do. My mom likes cars, but again, not as much as we do. But it's it's funny because I've also ad- adapted and I guess evolved to kind of take on the plus or minus 10 years of their generations too. Because oh, interesting. It's like I find the cars from their generation or their years of birth and I go, oh, I really like that. You know, I'd like to have that. So one of my fantasies mm. is to actually have a car that I really like of the year that my siblings and my parents were born. So my dad was born in 50, Mm -hmm. mom in 54, sister in 74, brother in 75 and brother in 78. And of course me in 86. So in 86, I want either an M3, M5 or M6. So then, you know, for kind of scattered all over for the, the rest of the years, you know, for different cars. But it's, I do think it's true that, you know, there's that plus or minus 10 years because, when I was 10 years old, 1996, the greatest car was the E36 M3 as far as I was concerned, you know? And so that was, you know, that was a, a monster car. And so, of course, I have an affinity for the C4 ZR1, the E36 M3, the E20, uh, the E34 M5, you know, because I was a kid seeing those cars around and in magazines and going, oh, I got to have that. I got to have it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a strong rule. I It's nice when it jumps. Um, Hemmings did a wonderful story within the last week about a young woman who's maybe 24 or 25 who totally fell in love with a 1960 Plymouth, was it? Two-tone, turquoise and white, and she and her dad together restored it, got it running, and she drives it around and loves it. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and that's a case of an entire previous generation. Right. Um, my car club uh, in the Hudson Valley, um, there there are still local car clubs um, that has at least six members under 50. <laughs> um, but the car club owns its own Model T Speedster. Oh, wow. One of the things that I promised and I've gotten a commitment is I'm going to learn how to drive a Model T which oh, is completely cool. and totally different from any other vehicle right. around. Right. Right. So, I, uh, I know I only understand I've, I've never driven anything pre 1950, 
But okay. the oldest car that I drove was my buddy Rob, who's the same age as I am. We we went to high school together and we're best friends. We were in each other's weddings, you know. He is an obsessor of 1950s cars, especially Cadillacs. Oh wow! So he Excellent. had he had a 1950 Cadillac Series 62 um, that he just sold uh, about a year ago now, um, and he had basically repaired it to the point where he could drive it anywhere, do anything with it, you know. Um, and then he has a semi-running uh, 1956 uh, pillarless uh, Coupe de Ville. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. and he bought it in not in in it was not running, uh, and he's gotten it running slowly but surely. And and uh, in fact, I had him on the podcast. His podcast will go up on Monday. Uh, but he's just he's a wildly interesting person anyway because of of uh, his taste in cars for being 30 something years old, you know? And, uh, in fact, that 56 Cadillac has auto, uh, high beam detection. Oh, I've read about that. Yes. Yes. And, uh, with a thing on the dash. Yes. Yes. Weirdest, coolest thing in the world. I think Because I'm like, that makes no sense for 1956, but it's cool as hell. But, uh, I drove another, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, you're fine. Go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say in terms of this, Younger people in older cars. Um, I actually know two guys in their 30s who are restoring late 40 post-war Packards, basically. Not the oh, not the yeah. Packard Bakers, but um, one is Ben Modilla, who I mentioned yes. previously. Yes. But then there's also Graham Kozaks. Okay. Um, Kozak, Kozaks. I have to. I just think of him as Graham, but he's actually hot rodding a post-war Packard using period pieces which i think is just oh hilarious really cool that's really cool now i i forgot that ben had his packard i just i was just talking about that a couple months ago with somebody i forgot that he had his packard i didn't know that he even still had it but that's good to know well that is actually i haven't confirmed that in a few years i briefly toyed with buying my favorite packards are the 46 and 47 they're just before the bathtub Mm -hmm. and they're the perfect blend of late 30s and uh late 40s yeah um and the last sort of proper upright packard grill anyway there was one that that came up guy never answered my uh my post but i had asked graham and asked ben about them and both of them said you know, unless it's absolutely totally rusted, which it didn't seem to be, these things will run forever. Your problem is that to do that interior properly will cost you twelve to fifteen grand. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so that's a, but um, oof. yeah. Well, and then of course there's Craig Cole who drove who oh, restored yeah. a thirty-two Ford Flathead V8 and actually drove it to a mama meeting. I no. went out to the Mama Track Day one time. He drove that thing, I don't know, seven hours. I didn't know he something. drove it all the way there. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. No, it was – well, and we share a fondness for flatheads because my 49 Morris has a flathead, a 918cc, 27.5-horsepower <laughs> flathead. <laughs> but um, I love Craig. So, yeah, and, and he let me drive it. Oh, uh, how was, was great it? great fun. Um, I had forgotten about old style American car steering, <laughs> right? You know, yes. turn yeah. the wheel three or four times yes. and then correct for the 
dead spot the size of Kansas, and you'll get there more or less. That's exactly but, where I was going when I drove when I drove Rob's 1950 Series 62 a couple of years ago. He said, "Come on, man, let's uh, go drive it." And I was like, "All right," because I had never driven it. I I uh, I always have a worry about driving people's um, heart and soul. You know, their classic cars that they've yeah. rebuilt or done. Oh, I always, definitely. I just, it's like, I don't want to screw up something that they have put blood, sweat, and tears into, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I drove it, and he's going, look, quarter mile before the turn, start turning. And I'm like, you're kidding. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not kidding. So, of course, we're driving. It's like 5 o'clock traffic almost, right? And we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a very, basically, think, think, um three-fourths of New York City's like bumper-to-bumper traffic in a small town in North Carolina. Oh, my God. Probably overpopulated yes. with uh, soccer moms with above-average children on their cell phone yes. in gigantic SUVs. Yes, exactly. Exactly. A woman in a suburban almost took me out um, yep. on the cell phone, by the because way. Because people don't realize that old cars don't have the brakes. They have the no friggin' clue, and it was the it was the sweatiest, most scary drive of my life. And I have been sideways at 130 miles an hour. I have had Martin Truex Jr. drive me in a Toyota Camry around Charlotte Motor Speedway at 135, <laughs> just pubic hairs That's away funny. from the wall. And this <laughs> this is what made me sweat when I got back. Every part of me, like my it just. My underwear was a pool, was just a pool. Mm. I had to go change my shorts and I, you know, it's, it was ridiculous. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe I was like, okay, now how far away do I have to stop? He's like, okay, did you see the sign back there? Yes. You should have stopped back there. Oh shit. You know, like <laughs> you should have started stopping, but it, it's remarkable. Cause I, the oldest I had driven up to that point was a 64, 67 Corvette. Okay. And much better steering and braking. Not even great, but much better by comparison. So when I drove a 1950 Cadillac, you're like, uh, just, uh, again, buckets of sweat. But I'm glad I did it because it's, it's, it's rewarding. It's, it's, it's scary. But it's like, this is car culture, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it made me actually kind of annoyed when I got back into a new car and went, oh, this kind of sucks. <laughs> you know so that brings well, that's me kind of oh go ahead go ahead no you're no fine. i was just gonna say that's kind of how i am with electric cars if you spend an entire day or a week in an electric car and then you go back to whatever it was you're like god this thing is noisy and it vibrates <laughs> and it's got all these rising and falling noises <laughs> and this is primitive right right so which brings you to which brings me to you actually added to it anyway, so it's okay. Which brings me to the fact that you drive a lot of modern cars, you know, mm-hmm. just like I do, but you have a uh, a collection of older cars as well. Mm-hmm. What is a feature you hate to love in a modern car, and what are features that you love uh, that you uh, love to hate in modern cars? Um... Boy think about this um (laughs) i actually really like adaptive cruise um for a number of reasons 
when I get a test car in New York, my immediate routine is to get the hell out of Dodge so I can actually test it. But there is two hours of interstate mm-hmm. between me and the mountains at that point. So once you get clear of Manhattan and, you know, I take my route, I just, I get on at mile post 21 and I get off above the hundred level, right? Mm-hmm. So in between, if it's not crazy traffic, is the perfect uh, case for adaptive cruise. And if I'm driving a new car, most of them are quiet and so well insulated and relatively well sprung that it's not particularly rewarding to try to toss them around within the confines of a standard issue interstate where there are limits on how tight the curves can be and so forth and so on. In other words, it's boring driving. It's a type <laughs> that many Americans do a lot. Right. In that case, I like adaptive cruise because I can set it to the maximum speed under which the state troopers will arrest me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, or just under the level at which I should say. Right. Yeah. No, and, yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> the point you know, where they will finally arrest you. Pay attention to the rest of the car and maybe even what's on the radio. And the great thing is the data is already in an adaptive cruise reduces crashes, injuries, and deaths. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Like lane departure warnings and things like that. Right. Um, so I'm actually, and, and I think you kind of lose points among auto journalists for saying that you use cruise and adaptive cruise, but fine, whatever. I use cruise you know, control the, all the time. Yeah. I, you also get better fuel economy. I, well, There's even, a lot of really sophisticated programming that goes into that. Even in my damn Shelby, I, I use my cruise control all the time on oh. the highway because, you know why? Because cops, they, they want me. They love every yeah. car I own. I've owned. So this this the GT three fifty. Before this was a twenty fifteen uh, Mustang GT with performance pack. Before that was a two thousand seven nine eleven Carrera S. Before that was a two thousand nine E ninety M three. Cops want me, and mm-hmm. I just don't want to give them the satisfaction. Number one. Yeah. Uh, number two. I don't have to. I don't have to worry about. Uh, keeping up with traffic or falling back, but I'm just staying in my lane, you know, and then I just move over to get around people. The only thing I don't like about adaptive cruise, I do like adaptive cruise control. I just get flustered with adaptive cruise controls that are a little bit too fussy and too um, uh, nannying at times. It's not so much, it ha- it's less and less now, but for instance, my dad had a 2014 750, li Mm -hmm. and now my mom has a 2019 and the the adaptive cruise control on both are radically different like i mean of course you would expect five years but his Mm -hmm. 2014 that he had was it felt so rudimentary it was insane um it would basically slam on the brakes because if you were trying to get around a car sometimes it would if you took your foot off the gas because you know obviously you can still dry you can still use the gas pedal even when the cruise control is on but sometimes it would get it would get caught up thinking that it was still in a situation where there was a car in front of it, even if there wasn't, and it would literally slam on the brakes in the middle of the highway. So it would uh, kind of trip up yeah. on itself from time to time, and it was like, this is ridiculous. Um, in general, I've found the Asian adaptive cruises are way more conservative, mm-hmm. even on their closest setting, 
there is enough space where someone can cut in in front of you, and then the car rams on its brakes. Whereas German and American adaptive cruises, the closest setting tends to to be closer to what I call the Jersey setting, right? uh, Yeah, which is basically sitting right on your ass. But um, there's actually one little thing that I look for in the algorithms, and test this out on the next cars you do if you hadn't already done it. you'll be on that situation where you're closing in on a car and you can tell, you can feel the car is just starting to slow down, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you put on the blinker to pull out and overpass, does it start to accelerate when you put on the blinker or not until the car in front of it clears? Oh, I've never even thought about doing that. I have to check that. I never even thought about taking notice. So I'm going to have to do T- that. Test now. it out. Yeah. Because, FCA cars in particular, as soon as you put on the blinker to overtake, they will start to accelerate to get you up back to where you were in the overtaking lane. Whereas the Toyota that I'm in now, you have to not only pull into that left lane at your reduced rate of speed, but it has to take the couple of seconds to clear the vehicle ahead out of its vision systems and confirm that there's no longer something ahead before it will let you accelerate before it will accelerate for you. That is pretty interesting. I'm going to have to test it out. I'm going to have to now, of course, with all the coronavirus stuff going on, it's, it'd be a little difficult, but my dad has a, a a 2019 M850 X, you know, I X drive, all that crap. And then my mom has, we are a BMW family, aren't we? (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Which is funny because for the longest time, my dad hated BMWs because I loved them. So, you know, now it's, now it's kind of the opposite, which is even funnier. But, um, uh, even with my mom had a 2019 X five with the, the V eight, uh, with an M with the M sport package. And three months later she traded it for the seven series, which I thought was very funny and very odd. But even between those two vehicles, the, when you set the, uh, cruise control radar guided cruise control and the um uh the lane keep assist systems right the seven series immediately jumps to the middle of the road and then slowly eases back to the uh into the middle of the lane the x5 did not do that my dad's 850 does not do that but the seven series just genuinely darts to like, ask your dealer if there's some sort of weird sense of weirdness going on there. there it shouldn't do that. It's, it's very, very odd. Um, and so I, you know, I should actually take it to the dealer to see if that, if there is anything going on with that. But I thought that was kind of odd. Um, I had the a sensor point. stuff is, is weird because I had a, um, uh, Joe, God, I'm forgetting. What's the Jeep pickup? The new one. The oh, Jeep, the, uh, uh, the, the Jeep gladiator. Gladiator, thank you. I had a Gladiator lined up to loan for a loan, and it got yanked a couple of days beforehand. And I said, "What happened?" And oh, the windshield got cracked. So I'm like, "You're not going to tell me what the, who the journalist was?" <laughs> right. Nope. Yeah. But turned out the reason it stayed off the road for so long, getting a windshield for a Gladiator back then was tough because every windshield that was made went into a new Gladiator that went out the door to sell. Mm-hmm. But not only do you put in the new windscreen, you then have to recalibrate the vision system behind it for that piece of glass. 
that is actually interesting because my buddy, the same guy, Rob, my, my best friend, his mm-hmm. wife has a 2018 or 2019 Subaru, um, um, not the Forester, but Out, the Outback. Yeah, the Outback. Thank you. And yeah. she had a crack with in her, the with the eyesight system. Yes, and she had a crack in the windshield. Now it turned out to be a faulty windshield that was put in it brand yep. new, uh, wow. or from you know the brand new car. So they took it to to Subaru. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that it would take them like three months to be able to get a new windshield, and then they'd have to reset and recalibrate the the eyesight system. Yeah. So my buddy was telling me that, and uh, this is when they is like the car had just come out for that model year, and so basically they were like they were having some sort of shortage because there was a apparently there was uh, some not a recall, but like you know Subaru were kind of requesting people come back to the dealership when they could to get a new windshield and blah blah blah. And yeah. So, but yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I had a new Ranger a couple, uh, about a month ago now, I guess. And Mm -hmm. it was one of the few, uh, it's one of the few cars that I've tested that when you turned on the radar guided cruise control, it automatically, uh, reverted back to where you had it set before in terms of the distance. Oh yeah. Boy. So it actually stayed wherever you had programmed it before when you turned the car off. And I was like, this is great because, I always have it as you know close as can be. Yeah, because <laughs> some of them are just a little too far away. I had a I had a Buick, which uh, is going to be exciting driving through that twenty five mile an hour school zone if you were on an interstate previously. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, that brings it to another thing. The Toyota. I had a Toyota. Um, uh, I had a Toyota Land Cruiser Heritage Edition uh, a couple months ago, and. It's cruise control does not work under 30 miles an hour or 28 or 30. I think it's what it is. 27 oh. or 28. Um, okay. Which I always think is weird because I, I like to set the cruise control to 27 in a 25 mile an hour zone. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. And just, you know, kind of cruise. Any, anyway, to answer your last question, and then I'm going to have to jump because rather than my shock, we've been talking for more than two hours, yeah, two hours and 12 um, minutes. Yeah. So, um, new car features that I love to hate. It's really simple. Big wheels. Um, <laughs> they look awesome, right? Big wheels make any vehicle look better, especially tall SUVs. Mm-hmm. If you put 22s on them or whatever, they are the worst possible option you can buy as we tended to put in every single new car review that we wrote because big wheels end up with tiny little rubber band tires that have no sidewall. And so your kidneys will pay the price as long as you own that car, because the ride is significantly worse. Makes makes a lot of sense. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's very true. It was almost like we had a command key to insert the sentence. However, we do not recommend the high-end largest <laughs> diameter wheels because you will pay the price in ride and quietness. That is 100% so. true. And on that mm. note, big wheels keep on turning. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, well done. <laughs> thank well you. Done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was, as soon as you said big wheels, I don't know why it jumped into my head, but I was like, I got to yeah. say it. I got to throw it in there. So, oh, totally. John, it has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, 
Um, Likewise, but, thank you for letting me ramble. Oh, of course. Anytime you want to ramble, I'm your man. I can record it. It's fine. Absolutely. I very much look forward to seeing how the hell you're going to edit this down. So oh, good no. luck and thank you for the opportunity. Good, sir. This is not being edited down. You are getting your own full podcast. Oh, <laughs> okay. It might be a two-parter. <laughs> might be a two-parter. I was <laughs> say. Good Lord. <laughs> Provide a table of contents. <laughs> John, thank you so much right, for your time, man. I hope you have thank a great you. day. My pleasure. Same to you. Bye-bye. Right, bye. What an interesting guy, right? Eclectic in in his uh, love of various cars, uh, his ownership of various cars. Really interesting stories, right? Family stories, family dynamics. Um, I, I, I love John. I, I loved listening to him. I loved conversing with him. Um, I, again, I... I only knew John through Facebook, through social media. And so it was nice to really actually sit down and listen to him and get to talk to him. And he's obviously very easy to talk to. He's obviously very uh, well-spoken and well-understood, well-read. He's pretty much an expert on this. I mean, well, not pretty much. He is the expert on this. You know, John is a, is a, a, a great, great authority. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Just to give you a little sneak peek of what's coming up, on Wednesday, I will be introducing you to rawautos.com. So there will be no guest on Wednesday. Instead, I will be talking about Raw Autos, how I got started as a a motoring journalist, somebody who created a website, uh, how all that happened. And um, yeah, so stay tuned on Wednesday. That'll be probably a shortened podcast in probably 30 to 45 minutes. I haven't actually recorded it yet. Uh, But on Friday will be the absolutely amazing the wonderful filmmaker, J.F. Musial, who has made uh, the the great documentaries, Apex, the story of the hypercar, and of course, Apex, the secret race across America about Alex Roy's drive to beat 32 hours and seven minutes uh, from New York to, to Los Angeles. So great podcast. I enjoyed talking to J.F. I've known J.F. for a number of years, um, and he's a just an amazing filmmaker. You can also find his stuff with NBC for the show Proving Grounds and NBC Sports with Drive with Chris Harris. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's going to be a really fun podcast. You guys are going to love it. Uh, I hope you enjoy Wednesdays, which is just me talking, uh, being a blowhard, essentially, letting you know that I'm amazing. Listen to me. Um, yeah. And again, share this with everybody. Share this with the world. Let them know. I hope you're social distancing. I hope you're still taking it seriously, washing your hands, washing your door handles, and giving a damn about the people you love. And don't let up. No matter what the government tells you, don't stop. Keep on giving a shit about the people you love. All right? Wash your hands. Social distance. And try a little bit more than six feet. How about that? Just then, uh, hey, if you're going to cough and sneeze, hachoo, <laughs> right into the elbow. Not into a microphone like I'm doing right now. Uh, I've only said it in one other podcast, and I really need to remind myself to say it more often. The intro music and outro music is brought to you by Epidemic Sound uh, from an artist named Stefan Carlin. And the song is I Wish That I Was a Madman. And without further ado, again, hope you're staying safe. And please, always remember, happy motoring.